Today, I interviewed Dr. Dominic Diagonsino. Dominic is a professor of molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of South Florida. All right. So, Dom, thanks again, man. It's, uh, it, it, it's great to reconnect after four years of... Um, conversations. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more what you've been up to. You sent me links on Nemo. Um, yeah. To the Nemo project. And I was looking at your resume. It looks like, um, looks like probably around the time we talked in 2017 or maybe after, before that you became co-chair at American Epilepsy Society, which is really yeah. cool. Cause I know that's one of the the best sort of research, I think, areas of, of ketogenic um, intervention. And then, and then even more recently, an advisor and board member of the Hyperbaric Medicine International. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess the, the term one page resume can't really apply when you've got, you know, it's a lot of stuff. Oh, um, yeah, my, my university, I have to like report everything onto that. So as we come up for annual re reviews and stuff like that, our manuscripts and our committee service, but yeah, the American Epilepsy Society was a, I just transitioned off of that, mm -hmm. but that was a very rewarding position. Cool. And um, so, so yeah, so I, I wanted to connect to hear yeah. more about what, what, what you've been working on and what, um, what people should know about, you know, when they think about you, your research or ketogenic diet, um, you know, what, what, what's top of mind for you these days? Yeah, well, I still consider myself uh, a basic science researcher, you know, my background, uh, I got my PhD in neuroscience and physiology, and I'm very passionate about how the brain controls our body. And conversely, like how the body feeds back to the brain and how nutrition and even exercise and other, you know, uh, other factors can modulate the inner relationship of the two. So, you know, I've, I've, since 2008, I've focused a lot of my attention, as you know, on the ketogenic diet and understanding how therapeutic ketosis changes brain energy metabolism to have an anti-seizure effect. And, you know, I was probably deep into that work when we connected, but also expanding into uh, cancer, into ALS, into Alzheimer's disease. Now we're looking at ketones as an epigenetic regulator and actually studying a disease called Kabuki syndrome, which is a neurological developmental disease that we think can uh, be therapeutically treated with nutritional ketosis. And that's a PhD project for one of my students. So I do basic science research, but since we last talked, I've, we are moving the science into human application. So, uh, so we have a clinical trial uh, looking at the effects of the ketogenic diet and low carb diet on glycemic variability. So how the blood glucose levels change in response to the food that we eat and to response to uh, you know, various activities and also things like meditation and behavioral control. We're looking at many different biomarkers. We have continuous glucose measurement devices on the patients. And, and we also do like, we look at stress levels. We do various psychometric analyses to determine 
how nutrition is changing our metabolism and is changing our psychology. But we're really interested in actually understanding how a wearable device, how if you put a device on your body and you have visually continuous measurement of glucose and able to see that, and we use an app-based system called Levels, uh, Levels Health as a company, and they create an app that gives you information uh, depending on the glucose fluctuations of the food that you're eating. So this technology can be extremely helpful for the epilepsy population. So that was like my, my main focus because neurologists and dietitians, if they, if they administer the ketogenic diet to a patient, they don't really know if they're following the ketogenic diet or what meals could kick them out of ketosis. But with a continuous glucose monitor, that data will go to their smartphone and will go to the cloud and they can have 24 seven oversight of the ketogenic diet because on a ketogenic diet, your glycemic variability is like nothing. Like you have like perfect control of glucose if you do a proper ketogenic diet. So uh, it's very good to understand, you know, patient compliance and also what foods may be triggering, maybe kicking patients out of ketosis. But as I delved into the subject more, because it's really only used for type one diabetics or type two diabetics, uh, I was proposing even at an NIH workshop that this technology be used uh, for, for epilepsy and type, you know, uh, different types of epilepsy disorders. So, uh, but I'm really interested in this idea of preventing metabolic disease before it happens. So having patients who maybe have prediabetes or an inclination to be, if they're, they have type diabetes in the family, type two diabetes, get the wearable technology on them to determine if this could modify our behavior in a way that could prevent, you know, type two diabetes and insulin resistance from happening in the first place. So I think it's maybe one of the most important questions and these these behavioral tools, which we think are behavioral tools, really have the potential to allow people to give them feedback, to coach them into eating properly. You know, if you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor and you look at your smartphone and you see your glycemic excursion go up to like 200 after eating a certain meal, you know, when we went out to eat, I wear a continuous glucose monitor and sometimes I'm eating a meal that's supposed to be low carbohydrate, but it shoots me up really you, high. You, you wear one? Yeah, I wear a continuous glucose monitor all the time. And uh, <laughs> you're not, you're not pre-diabetic. doesn't look like. I'm not pre-diabetic, but it has basically allowed me to understand my metabolism. If you know, we can take, we can prick our finger and get a drop of blood. And that tells us glucose at a snapshot, right? But if you want to learn our metabolic physiology, it's like, if you want to learn how a cheetah runs, you could look at a picture of a cheetah running, or you can watch a continuous movie of a cheetah running for 24 hours, you know, when it's walking, when it's standing and things like that, you get far more information out of that video than you do of the picture of the cheetah, right? The continuous glucose monitor sensor and the app is basically like that video, right? You get far more information about the subject of interest. In this case, it's the most important biomarker for metabolic health. It will determine 
how a patient responds, it will determine your cancer growth. It will determine uh, how the ketogenic diet, the efficacy of the ketogenic diet for managing epilepsy and other uh, neurological disorders. So it's critically important to have a mastery uh, of your glucose level and wearing a continuous glucose monitor sensor, and more importantly, the technology behind the app that is actually coaching you along the way is, uh, is, is really important. And I've, I've you know, partnered with this company very strategically because they were a leader in sort of this technology. And now we've incorporated this technology into uh, a 30 patient clinical trial that's an IRB approved clinical trial through the University of South Florida College of Medicine. And we're about halfway through the trial right now. I'm blinded to the subjects, but we're collecting a lot of really great data to understand how we can leverage this technology and this digital you know, uh, app to, uh, to really coach patients to eating properly. Wow. And, and so someone like you, who's not, you know, pre-diabetic, what, what do you do with that data? Does that help inform what you eat? Are you able to find health foods that are better for you? Yeah, it's very insightful in many different ways. So uh, in ways that I didn't fully appreciate or understand. So if I eat a carbo, my meal is really low in carbohydrates, but sometimes I, I eat carbohydrates uh, in small amounts, you know, and sometimes if you eat a lot of protein, that can also elevate your glucose level. So th some things that I've, I've begin to understand how I can calculate the ketogenic diet, I can add more protein than I thought. I thought increasing my protein too high would kick me out of ketosis and, uh, and would shoot my glucose levels up really high, but come to find out that I can eat up to 200 grams protein a day, and that can aid in actually muscle repair, muscle growth, and actually, you know, help achieve more of my strength and fitness goals by adding more protein in, and I can still stay in a state of ketosis and still keep my blood glucose level and insulin level pretty low. So I also uh, kind of discovered that if I eat a meal and then go for a walk after the meal, that can completely block that elevation in blood glucose. So doing some kind of activity right after a meal uh, would be super important for a type two diabetic, but even a normal healthy person, those spikes in blood glucose can actually do harm over time. They can cause inflammation in our arteries they can you know, trigger an elevation of insulin. And that, that is lowered if you go just do, uh, it doesn't have to be vigorous exercise. It could be like a walk with the dogs, which we do you know, after dinner. Uh, I've also found out that if you have a meal and you eat your fiber and fat before the protein or before the carbohydrates, that can also reduce that glucose and insulin spike after a meal. So well, the, the sequence in which you eat your food can actually have a pretty big difference, uh, a pretty profound attenuation of that glycemic variability. And probably or like right after we get off this call, I'm gonna post what happens if you eat a mango and then go ahead and have a glass of wine with the mango. Alcohol, <laughs> for reasons I don't completely understand, but it came out of the data from the CGM company levels reported that a lot of users would have alcohol before eating carbohydrates and it would completely block the response. So the question is, where is the glucose going? If you're having alcohol and you're having a meal with it, 
So I, I think the answer could be kind of scary. It could be stimulating something called uh, de novo lipogenesis. So actually the liver may shuttle the glucose in producing fat, but what's, what's you know, very observable, not only in myself, but in many other people, there's no publications on this. So I think I actually might want to publish something on this. Uh, I can eat a mango and it shoots me up like 50 milligrams per deciliter. My glucose goes up like the Delta, right? So if I have a glass of dry wine, like I have dry farm wines, which are very like low sugar, like the whole bottle has less than one gram of sugar. And if I have a fairly large glass you know, wine, like 12 ounces, like a normal glass, I guess a little bit bigger. And then I eat the mango, I have like no glycemic response. It completely blocks the sugar response. Weird. So this is obviously very important for, you know, glucose control, which is a major factor for diabetes. But as a basic science researcher, I want to find out why this happens. And I think it has major implications for like our health. So, so this is like, you know, I'm just giving you some examples of things I otherwise would not have known if I didn't have that video, that real-time snapshot hmm. of what happens, uh, because you have to measure uh, repeatedly over time to really understand, you know, what's happening to your glucose level. Wow. Um, you, yeah. When people say, you know, like this, you know, my body's a temple, like your body really is like, you know, you, you have it all calculated. Like, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of people doing this and, um, if you haven't seen it already, like the Apple watch has come out with technology, you know, continuous glucose measurement technology. I don't think their particular sensing methodology is nearly as accurate as a Abbott Libre sensor or a Dexcom G6 or G7 now uh, sensor. So, uh, you know, a lot of the companies that are coming online now, I think Levels Health is really like the leader in this. They, uh, they partner with companies like Dexcom or Abbott and they use their hardware, but it syncs up with their software. And the most important thing is that their software interprets the data coming in. So it, it will actually know if you had a cup of coffee if you exercise mm. and that data gets logged and it will ask you a question, Hey, did you eat a meal? Can you take a picture of the meal? And then that meal gets logged. Um, and it collects data. You can do a comparison. Like, uh, I'm going to, I'll post a picture after this of a mango before and after, you know, eaten without alcohol and eaten with alcohol. And you can overlay the two data sets. And so you can see the difference between that. So, oh. There's a lot of uh, 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 many, many features built into the software. So it becomes a coach. Like you don't have to have a doctor. It's like the hardware and the software mm. become a doctor, but they are not targeting it for a, it has massive implications for epilepsy and for cancer patients. So I want to get this technology into those clinical trials. But most importantly, I think from the context of prevention, people can wear these devices optimize their metabolic health uh, by understanding what controls their glucose level. And not only is their metabolic health optimized, they feel a lot better, they have more energy, they think better. Uh, you know, I know I, I'm way more productive in the lab. I'm way more productive writing, working on manuscripts. If I keep my uh, glucose levels kind of low and stable, if I have wild fluctuations in my glucose levels, I can go back and look at that day and it's just like, you know, I just could not get it together. So the days where I have a lot of mental flow, where I'm in that flow state is that 
time when my glycemic uh, variability is tightly controlled. That's interesting. And I should, I should really um, try that. So when, when your glycemic uh, variability is controlled, is that synonymous with saying, you know, you're in either a fasting state or you've had few carbs throughout the day? That, I mean, that's one way to control your glycemic variability. Um, you know, it's, that's the fuel flow to your brain. If you mm -hmm. eat one way to kick you out of good glycemic variability is to eat some carbohydrates by themselves where your glucose will go up and you may feel fine, but about two or three hours later, you have what's called a postprandial dip in your glucose. And those dips in glu glucose, your body senses that as uh, reactive hypoglycemia. Not only do you have brain fog, but you start craving more carbohydrates. So you'll go back and want to snack again. Mm. So if you if you train your body to uh, to sort of if you've trained it through fasting or if you've trained it through low carb ketogenic diets, you become fat adapted mm -hmm. in a way where if you do have hypoglycemia, you don't even feel it because your ketones are elevated, and that yeah. provides steady fuel flow to your brain, even in the, even during a hypoglycemic event. And we're talking about, you know, relatively minor hypoglycemia occurs, you know, when you're fasting or something like that. Oh, that's, so let me ask your advice. So if I want to have a really productive day tomorrow, you know, I get up, what should I eat from the moment I get up throughout the day and, and when? Yeah, it, it depends on the individual, but what I do, if I know if my work day if like my writing day is Friday, it's usually earlier in the week, but my writing day is Friday. I eat more of this, of the same food on Thursday. Like I will boost my calories by 25% and I will get in extra calories and uh, it'll be low carb, you know, relatively low carb, but I just get in extra calories and that kind of boosts your glycogen levels in uh, even if it's protein, you can actually, you know, that will, uh, increase your energy reserves, you could say. And then on Friday, which would be my writing day, I would have a smaller than normal. I'll either fast. I am very productive. If I fast, sometimes I do a three day fast and that's actually, I allocate yeah. my writing for that. If I'm working on a grant or something like that, three days. But if I don't, if I don't want to fast, I'll have, you know, just like three eggs and maybe a little bit of fish or something like that. And I'll put like, some MCT. I used a product called Keto Brains, which is like MCT oil, lion's mane mushroom, and alpha GPC, and a few other things. It's like a nootropic. So I'll add that to my coffee, and I'll have you know protein and fat in the morning, but not a lot. I'll probably decrease the size of my meal by fifty percent, and then I'll just work the entire day off that meal. Like I'll eat the meal, and then I'll just sip on my coffee throughout the day, and I'll go. And my next meal will be like, you know, in the evening for dinner. Wow. And I tend to, my think better if I under eat, my body is fat adapted. So I know my ketones will be elevated throughout the day. So that's really the fuel that my brain is running on. Glucose levels really don't change much. They stay low and stable, but the benefit is that your body starts producing ketones. So that provides an alternative energy substrate that can sort of further boost your cognitive function. Also the ketones increase brain blood flow. So you just have like your, your thought processes are more clear. Uh, you don't have these wild fluctuations in glucose. If you're eating like a bowl of cereal in the morning or a bagel where you're just like, you know, you're up and then you're hungry and you're hangry, you know, 
Hmm. So I just, I've, I've learned to leverage, you know, nutrition and at times fasting to increase my academic productivity. And it became, I think, a major factor in all these benchmarks that you have to do in academia, like getting, you know, 10 publications a year and grants and doing all this work. So uh, I can't imagine doing that, eating like cereal for breakfast and then a sandwich during the day and like having to stop to prepare the meal and all the crazy energy fluctuations I used to have. I remember having when I used to eat that way. I, it wouldn't really work well for me <laughs> with a, the type of work that I do. That's amazing. I, I, I haven't been doing this intentionally, but there's some days where, you know, I only eat a little bit and then like six hours go by and I'm working and it's like when I'm accidentally fasting or low carb, I've, I've definitely noticed more focus there. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's an evolutionarily conserved mechanism because I feel, you know, if we're presented with limited food availability, uh, biologically, it would make sense to have heightened vigilance and mm -hmm. heightened awareness. So mm -hmm. we have the, you know, cognitive uh, reserve to go and forage for food, to hunt animals, you know, to be physically and cognitively at our best if we are a little bit hungry. And it doesn't have to be complete fasting, but it could be creating a calorie deficit to where you, your ketones are elevated, your glycemia is controlled. But if you go into that state and you're already at a calorie deficit, then you don't want to go into a starvation state. So what I like to do is sort of eat extra food the day before, and that could be like recovery day. If I had worked out earlier in the week or something like that, I'll get an extra protein. If I have a hard workout Wednesday evening, I'll eat through Thursday. And it's more of like a recovery day where I'm preparing, you know, maybe doing some, some less cognitively demanding tasks, but setting my body up for a productive writing session or grant writing or whatever, working on a manuscript for Friday, where I'll have that, you know, small ketogenic meal in the morning, or I'll fast and then I'll reserve, you know, eight to 12 hours of continuous work. And I'll take breaks in between, but otherwise I wouldn't be able to really have that focus without uh, putting my body into that metabolic state. Changing your metabolic state changes the neuropharmacology of your brain and also sort of like your whole, you know, metabolic, uh, the flow of energy to your brain. So that's what we're doing. And I think that's what I've gained an appreciation for early on when I started reading about the physiology of fasting, when I was like, if you go without food, where does the glucose come from? So it's like, I wasn't really taught this. I went through a nutrition program that you could fast for weeks and blood glucose still stays relatively stable. There's very powerful homeostatic mechanisms that maintain your blood glucose. So you can make glucose from fat, from the glycerol backbone of fat. Like these are things that I wasn't like formally taught through my university education, but reading about extreme states of starvation and then later the ketogenic diet. And I didn't, I wasn't even taught that the ketogenic diet was originally a medical therapy for epilepsy. And then, as you know, I connected with Jim Abrams, the Charlie Foundation. And I learned from like Dr. Eric Kossoff and the late John Freeman, his book was the first one I wrote and Jim and Charlie know him well, because they were sort of the, the, the crew that set up the diet for Charlie. Um, and I know uh, he's doing well. He even could transition off of the diet. Charlie. Yeah. Doing, 
Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't follow the ketogenic diet. I think I heard Jim say, maybe it was your podcast, but I think even talking with him, you know, he says that he does the ketogenic diet, his family does, but Charlie doesn't, you know, Charlie did the ketogenic diet. He transitioned off. No, he told me that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, his story is really remarkable because it's like, you know, you better believe like he's, he's, there's no lack of medical professionals that he has access to, right? Like he's in LA or they were in LA and he's got all the connections in the world. And so you think that someone would tell him prior to doing brain surgery, like try the keto diet. And for people who don't know, like, so Jim Abrams, who happens to be the director of the 1980s movie airplane, his son had uh, sort of a serious um, condition involving seizure, so epilepsy, a serious version of epilepsy that the doctors ultimately recommended brain surgery. And what ended up helping him wasn't the surgery, but was just the ketogenic diet. Um, and yeah. then that got, that, that got Jim on a mission of sharing that with the world through the Charlie Foundation. Yeah. yeah. And it was documented very nicely, not with Charlie as the actor, but it was documented very nicely by Meryl Streep in the That's movie right. first, Do No Harm. And I watched that probably 2008. It was on YouTube. I get it probably still is. And, you know, I became very intellectually, uh, you know, curious about the mechanisms. So I just delved into the publications and uh, there was very high level science to uh, to really describe uh, why the ketogenic diet is working. It's not a single mechanism. And that's what's kind of important. Drugs usually work through a specific mechanism, but with a ketogenic diet, it's working through multiple mechanisms in synergy. And I think that is part of the power of the ketogenic diet. You're coaxing your own body to change the neuropharmacology of your brain and, and many other systems in the body to promote normal brain function in the context of the etiology of epilepsy is largely unknown. I think uh, Charlie has Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, uh, but you know, there's different reasons why people have epilepsy. But independent of the cause of epilepsy, which is interesting, the ketogenic diet worked for many different types of seizures. Hmm. So Dravet, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, absence seizures, Lennox-Gastaut, we now we study Kabuki syndrome, which has uh, Angelman syndrome, you know, and, and many other types of uh, seizure disorders. The ketogenic diet works. So I became even more curious, like how is it working for all these different seizure types? Because it's really storing, restoring the homeostasis of brain energy metabolism and balancing the neurotransmitters. And if the bioenergetic state of the brain changes the energy status, then it's much more susceptible to having a seizure like glutamate's higher, the GABA to glutamate ratio is disrupted. So the ketogenic diet gently puts all that back into harmony, if you will. Not for everybody, you know, about one third don't respond, about two thirds respond, and about, you know, one third of those are like one third, it uh, depends on which study you look at, but a, a proportion of those are super responders like Charlie, meaning that they could do the ketogenic diet for a period of time, get off of it, and it cures their epilepsy. So when I learned about that, that usually drugs, you come off of drugs and you have like a rebound effect and your epilepsy gets worse. But with a ketogenic diet, you could transition off and some patients never get seizures again. So this question is like, how is it curing the brain of epilepsy? 
not everybody, but a portion of, of patients, the majority of patients respond. And keep in mind that the patients that were even put on the ketogenic diet failed multiple anti-epileptic drugs. So they were like the they were like the patients no one wanted to deal with, right? So none of the drugs worked. And then they're the patients who tried the ketogenic diet that you know many of them responded. About a third don't respond. We don't know why, but that's kind of the case. So when I learned all this, uh, I was kind of angry. Maybe that Jim was angry too, but you know, much should be much more angry than me because he was not even presented. This was not presented to him as an option for his son. And I was studying. Why is that? Like, I I really don't get that. So, so talking, sorry to interrupt you, but I, you know, there's a lot about this. So, okay. I'm glad you stopped at this point too. So it's it's a very important point. And I talked to you about this four years ago, but so, um, so he had access to every doctor anyone would need and none of them told him this. And I think what he or you had told me back then was that this is just not covered in medical school, but that seems funny to me because, um, what am I trying to say? Yeah. That just seems remarkable to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you gotta, you have to understand there's a lot, there's it's multifactorial. And it's not like, you know, there's not a conspiracy by the pharmaceutical companies or anything like that. Uh, I'll explain to you maybe three reasons off the top of my head. Um, You know, it it is difficult to implement the ketogenic diet. Neurologists are not trained in nutrition, so they'll have to work with a nutritionist, which they often don't have those resources, you know, at their fingertips, right? Uh, it's much easier on the patients and the doctor if they could give a drug that's efficacious. And a ketogenic diet is, is difficult to implement. I think that's probably, um, I think most neurologists that are trained properly will understand that the ketogenic diet is highly effective for- but Why wouldn't they bring it up at all? Like prior to brain surgery, be like, hey, by the way, there's this thing- it's diet. You say it's difficult, but like, I mean, yeah. Look, if you say all you can eat is tuna fish, if tuna I know. Fit, I mean, I, I, you know, versus I, brain surgery. I understand, but you have to understand that I think maybe we may live in a bubble. Like you're, you're probably, you're probably up on fitness and nutrition and things like that. But if you take the average everyday family. And they have a child that has epilepsy and you go to an epilepsy clinic and that family would have to change their entire family structure. They have to eliminate all the, the potential foods in their house, the entire family. And it really helps that the mother and the father also eat this way. Otherwise, it's very difficult and perceived as draconian uh, form of therapy for the child to, to be that restrictive. You know, if it's an infant or like a toddler or something like that, it's a little bit different. They just, you know, they don't really, but once they become, you know, five, six years old into adolescence and it becomes, you know, very uh, more of a behavioral thing. And, um, you know, I guess, and the medical establishment really does not get a lot of money for this. So I think Jim mentioned one time, you know, the, the only person that benefits from the ketogenic diet is the patient, right? Uh, it puts a heavy, it does put a heavy burden on the system because you have to, 
the, there's a lot of oversight that needs to be involved with the diet. You need a nutritionist on top of the neurologist. You need to monitor ketones. It puts like a lot of work onto the parents and the parents are like, you know, they're probably stressed out at work and they're probably managing different, can, can you just give me a drug to, to manage my child? Uh, they may not understand it. Uh, they may want an easy route. But if they're really educated about the benefits of the ketogenic diet, many anti-epileptic drugs, some of them can have developmental effects on the child. And if you could, what neurologists may say, well, the ketogenic diet can stunt your growth, it can stunt development. I mean, but you know, look at Charlie, he's like towers over Jim, right? So he's like, he's like, he towers over me, he's like six foot something. And he was given a ketogenic diet at a period of time where it should have stunted his growth. And you know, that's, it's really not the case. We know we can manage, we can formulate the diet with the proper ratio of protein and the proper fats to have healthy development, even optimal development. It sounded like part of why, I mean, I thought you were saying part of why they weren't recommending it was also a lack of knowledge, right? Like a lack of, cause, cause you would think that prior to brain surgery, yeah. someone would say, hey, you try the ketogenic diet. So is there also just a lack of awareness that that could be a viable option? Uh, I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. I hate, I mean, the, uh, the current medical, uh, medical school system does not teach nutrition. It's not on the USMLEs. It's not on the boards. The medical curriculum is already so compressed as it is. It's like the curriculum development committee would be like, well, why are you, why are you telling me I should teach my students nutrition science and the ketogenic diet when we can barely fit in you know, all the stuff they need to learn for the curriculum for the USMLE and a medical college is scored based upon how the students do on, you know, step one and step two through the Blue Ridge rankings. Their main, the medical school's main priority is teaching the students a curriculum that gets the students the highest board scores that makes the college look best, right? So the national the, the boards, you know, the, the information that's on the boards, if it had ketogenic diet, if it had, if they had to understand uh, nutrition science, nutrition biochemistry, then we could, you know, the professors can actually change their lectures and actually teach this stuff. Uh, and I think it's, it's moving in that direction from the bottom up. The students are saying, hey, we think this is important. And they're actually even complaining and telling the administration that they need to, they should be taught nutrition oh. as nutrition is the most powerful factor for our health. <laughs> and I think yeah. everyone would, uh, but I think the medical establishment just thinks, well, just follow the USDA guidelines. And that's oh. probably not the best thing to do. Which are kind of obsolete. So, so do doctors now recommend the ketogenic diet for epilepsy? Well, you know, things are changing that they're recommending it more. If they do have resources in place where they can uh, team the family and the patient with a dietitian to advise them, uh, the Charlie Foundation has, you know, there are many clinics throughout the United States that are supported in part by the Charlie Foundation by their information, right? Um, so that's, that's helping. And it's also the Charlie Foundation becoming global. So they're trying to, you know, uh, have a footprint in other countries uh, where they can support families. Um, and it doesn't have to be face to face. It could be done remotely like everybody's doing nowadays. 
So things are changing. I would say things have changed since we can, since we last communicated, things have went up. Uh, there's been a, a, a very big interest in this topic and, and parents are asking because they realize, you know, all the buzz about keto for weight loss and this and that. And then they do a little more digging and be like, you know, they understand that keto ketogenic diet is actually a medical therapy for epilepsy. So that's how, uh, I probably had five or six emails today from parents. Uh, one of them, had a, had a child that was now 14 years old and he connected with me four years ago. And he just like, I had an amazing email. I could forward it to you later, but it's yeah. like, you know, uh, and then he's got a 93 year old uh, father that moved into the house or father-in-law and had with Alzheimer's disease and put him on the diet and like had a remarkable response Holy to the God. ketogenic diet. So, I mean, these are emails I get every day. I was reading this literally right before I got, I jumped on online with you mm-hmm. uh, during my faculty meeting. I was looking at emails, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I get so many emails from patients that they stumble across keto because of the buzz about keto. And mm. they, you know, maybe it's an article about weight loss, but it may say up front that, you know, the, you know, the ketogenic diet is used for epilepsy, but uh, all these emerging applications, you know, we also study, but my heart is actually with the original application of the ketogenic diet for epilepsy. That's a big part of what we do. And mm. I'm very motivated to further advance not only the ketogenic diet, but also exogenous ketones. So ketone supplements, because in some cases the, you know, kids cannot follow the ketogenic diet. It just becomes very difficult and, and adults can't follow it. Sometimes they have a fat intolerance and sometimes it just, you know, it's just too difficult to implement, but there are supplements that have been developed that can help produce a state of hyperketonemia, therapeutic ketosis, these can be used to further augment the therapeutic efficacy of the ketogenic diet, or in some cases, circumvent the ketogenic diet as sort of a standalone therapy or to be used in, in combination with drug therapy too. But ideally, the goal should be to get off drugs when you can. Wow. And so, so big picture, like it sounds like doctors are more than they were before recommending the ketogenic diet for epilepsy specifically? Uh I would say, yeah, yes, definitely. Uh, I would say the needle has so. Jeez, I mean, yeah. Now I would say, um, you know, there's a lot more interest. So as being the chair of the American Epilepsy Society special interest group, which is somewhat marginalized in the American Epilepsy Society, you know, mm-hmm. conference, which is completely funded by drug companies, but we, we do have the special interest group, uh, you know, and, I've seen that grow considerably over the years where, you know, people are standing in the back of the room trying to get into the room, you know, when we, because the topic is, is emerging interest in basic science and also clinical uh, science. And I think, you know, wearable technologies that I'm talking about, we have continuous glucose monitors and I'm, you know, conversing with companies that are developing continuous ketone monitors. So you slap uh, a device on your arm and it reports to your smartphone and tells you 24 seven what your ketones are. So you have very high oversight over therapeutic ketosis and then you can modulate the ketogenic diet or administer a ketone supplement to produce the optimal level of ketosis. So you know you can have promote optimal seizure control. We don't really know exactly what the optimal level of ketones would be 
for certain types of epilepsies. But, you know, we, the general consensus is that if you can stay, you know, between one and three millimolar at the least, you can actually uh, have a pretty profound anti-seizure effect with that. Mm -hmm. But we don't have the technology right now commercially available to measure that in real time. But once that technology and those wearable devices uh, come online and they become affordable, uh, I think it will be a game changer for neurologists because they would be able to have tight oversight over their patient's uh, ketogenic diet. And I think they'll be more likely to prescribe a ketogenic diet or a ketone supplement to their patients. Right. That's, that's encouraging. I, um, when you connect me with Jim Abrams, who is founder of the Charlie Foundation, who director of Airplane, I connected with him to talk to him, raise money for his organization by doing an Ironman. And my goal was to do it on the ketogenic diet, which yeah. I sort of did. It was hard. Like I, um, my biggest problem is that I was eating too much. So I was, I, you know, I was eating 90% fat, but when you're having 5,000 calories in your, your fourth, whatever it was, it's like, I, I was having, uh, I probably gained weight for a little bit. Well, trying to be on it. Cause I was just so, uh, calorie dense. Like I was eating. Yeah. And I think I, at one point, I think I went on a long bike ride and I think I hit, I forget. It was like one, I think it was like maybe 2.5 and I was really proud of myself, uh, but, um, yeah. so, what, so, so I think a lot of it comes down to self-control, right. I think. And, and, and it uh, does, I mean, uh, you know, for, for the epilepsy patient, that's the case too, but for the average person that's doing this as uh, a wellness approach, yeah. yeah, it really does. Uh, the benefits for most people on a ketogenic diet is that it has a satiating effect. We know that protein and fat especially uh, promote satiety in the body by altering hormones like ghrelin and G uh, GLP-1 and insulin and glucagon and, uh, and also just, just by, promoting, by promoting better glycemic control, that'll help regulate appetite. So the ketogenic diet can be satiating. So for most people, a ketogenic diet actually promotes satiety, which means yeah. if they're eating higher fat and more recently, it's, you know, we, we acknowledge that protein can be, uh, higher protein can be incorporated into the ketogenic diet. So this has a satiating effect and, uh, and most people generally will eat less over time in the beginning they may be used to the same portion sizes, but, uh, mm -hmm. but over time, uh, the large majority of people will eat less food and they will inadvertently calorically restrict. And that can be a good weight loss and weight maintenance strategy because, wow. and one may argue it's a good weight loss and weight maintenance strategy because food just does not taste as good. So if, if you're eliminating hyper palatable food that's high in sugar and car carbon processed carbohydrates, you are generally going to eat less. Uh, we do know that certain foods, you know, the combination of carbohydrates and fat together is actually what stimulates dopamine and uh, hyperphagia. So eating more. I wonder if I had stuck with it longer, if, if it gets easier. So in other words, like at first, it's really hard. You get hunger pangs, but then if you stick with it, does, does the person become accustomed to it? Does it become easier? 
yeah, that, that could be the case. Like when you initiate the ketogenic diet, uh, you might be used to like filling your plate with food, but because the caloric density of a ketogenic diet is so much higher, you may uh, actually be eating more calories in the beginning. But if you are, if you're paying close attention to your appetite and eating when you feel hungry, instead of eating because it becomes, it's something that you do. If you're eating because you're hungry, you will probably eat less food. I mean, according to like, you know, most people's physiology. Yeah. Uh, but I enjoy eating and I like the process of eating a large amount of food on my plate. So sometimes I like to incorporate fasting. And we know that intermittent fasting could actually be helpful for epilepsy patients too, because they're fasting during the day and that promotes uh, uh, a nice state of ketosis. And then if they, you know, eat just one meal a day or something, but make that meal a low carbohydrate ketogenic meal, they can maintain that ketosis, you know, even with a large meal, if it's formulated properly. If I have food on my plate, I'm just going to keep eating until it's done. My wife is very good with meal. Like when we go out to eat, she'll eat half of her plate and then ask for a box. And it's not because it's just because like wow. she feels that she's full. Like I would be, I would be forced to finish my plate, which when I was a kid and we would go out to eat and I would finish my meal, I would get like, congratulations, Dominic, you know, you finished your meal, you did so well. It's like, you know, I would feel guilty if I didn't finish my, my plate, if we went out to eat, because, you know, we typically didn't take food home, but, uh, but I think, you know, some people have an internal barometer that allows them to regulate their proportions and some people just have pretty crazy hyperphagia when they have food in front of them and they'll just keep eating until they become almost to the point of being sick yeah sounds like me i've seen yeah i you know if dieting can produce that behavior in people that otherwise did not have that behavior so when you know if you're dieting and you produce a calorie deficit in the beginning, you start to feel pretty energetic, but once your body reaches a certain set point and then you get below that set point, it can trigger some pretty bizarre eating behaviors. Uh, you know, once you get below your body's set point. Um, so that confuses me a bit because on one hand, when you're, you know, there's the idea that when you're on the ketogenic diet or when you're fasting, your app, the part of the point of fasting and being on the diet is so that your appetite's in control and so you're less hungry. Um, but it sounds like in other instances, it, it makes you more hungry. So wh when does uh, being keto make you hungrier versus less hungry? Yeah, so the, the, it, can be, it comes in stages and it has to be kind of viewed in context, right? If you create a mild calorie deficit and you have sustained weight loss, for example, one to three pounds per week, and you have an overweight person, they're going to start feeling significantly better, you know, in the weeks to come. But if you take a person who's already like relatively lean and they want to be leaner, you know, whether they're like a fitness fanatic or something like that, or you take someone who's a little bit overweight and you bring their body weight down to, you know, around an ideal weight, if you, once you get below their set point, then you're altering a lot of 
uh, appetite hormones that can trigger bizarre eating behaviors. And the whole science behind, you know, eating behaviors is, is kind of above and beyond my pay grade. Actually, there's people that study this, but we still don't know all the different factors. I'll tell you that we do know that postprandial decrease in blood glucose can trigger cravings. And, uh, and I knew, know that low carb diets and ketogenic diets really give you much tighter regulation of glycemic variability. And that will correspondingly produce greater, uh, that'll produce less fluctuations in various hormones that can dysregulate eating behavior. And so that becomes, so then that sort of explains the utility of a ketogenic diet, not just for epilepsy, but as a weight loss tool and a weight maintenance tool. So if you continue to adhere to a ketogenic diet for the maintenance of the weight loss, then it becomes easier for a lot of patients. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of doctors that have seen hundreds, if not thousands of patients, and they tell me they've tried to do it with a, with a high carb diet, a calorie restricted high carb diet, and then they go to a low carb or even, they don't always have to go to a ketogenic diet, but a ketogenic diet will produce the fastest results. You know, if you want results, you can kind of start off with a ketogenic diet, get them down to their ideal body weight, start bringing carbohydrates back in, typically in the form of fibrous vegetables. You want to avoid like a lot of breads, pasta, and things like that, but you just start adding some vegetables, maybe a little bit of fruit back in, and, uh, and then you can perfectly maintain that weight in most cases. So there's an art and a science to this. You know, Jeff Volek and Stephen Finney wrote a good book called The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Nutrition. It is, yeah. it's a science and it's also an art. So you need that the practitioner needs to be kind of creative in the way they're sort of setting up the, the patient on the diet, uh, whether it be weight loss or, or you know, um, managing a chronic disorder. So on a ketogenic diet, how do you get your fruits and vegetables? Do you, do you have fruits or maybe not because of the sugar? Yeah, so a ketogenic diet is defined by a macronutrient ratio that when you eat it, it produces hyperketonemia. So you can measure ketones in the blood, in the urine, or the breath. I actually use a breath meter that's called Biosense. And it's like, uh, I think one of the better ways, because you just puff into the meter and it tells you your ketone levels. Well, that sounds a lot easier and better than what I used to do, which is to, to prick my finger uh, and measure with blood ketones. Yeah, I like the breath acetone meter. Readout Health makes this meter. It's called Biosense. It's like the FDA, the only FDA approved like meters being used in clinical trials and everything. I like using it. Uh, I don't mind sticking my finger. I just feel that breath acetone is probably the most reliable way to measure fat oxidation. So if someone's trying to lose fat, those, the carbons of those fat will be in the acetone that you're blowing into the device. So the higher acetone level, you're basically blowing out the exhaust of fat. You know, that's how I think about it. So when I see my acetone levels up, I know that fat is kind of melting off my body. So uh, the biosense meter, which is, you know, more used for clinically, I mean, you can go to their website, readout health biosense and buy a meter. I like to use it not because I don't like to prick my finger, but because uh, it becomes a very valuable tool for measuring ketosis and breath acetone correlates 
better with seizure control than blood beta hydroxybutyrate. So I'm, I'm an advocate for using breath acetone uh, if you are following the ketogenic diet for seizure because it's, it's a better uh, monitor for ketosis for seizure control. That becomes really interesting with fasting because when you're fasting, your body is using the beta hydroxybutyrate for energy. So it might, and you're exercising, so your beta hydroxybutyrate might be low, but your acetone will be really high. And that's a good indicator that you're, you know, you're burning tremendous amounts of fat, but because you're using beta hydroxybutyrate for energy, your tissues is sucking that up. So it may, you might have a, a disproportionately low level of beta hydroxybutyrate, but you're still in a very high state of ketosis because you're acetone. So it becomes kind of rewarding to see the high acetone level because you know you're, you know you're burning tons of fat. So that's why I, wow. I kind of I like to measure that. It kind of gives me, you know, <laughs> good feedback that I'm in a very high state of fat fat burning or fat right. oxidation. And how do you do a three-day fast? Like that sounds really hard. Are there are there tips that you recommend, or how, how do you do it successfully? Well, I set myself up mentally for it, and I just know that this is what I'm going to do. And um, you know, sometimes I'll use like a mild stimulant in the in the morning, and that like caffeine actually kicks off fat burning. And the more fat burning effect, you know, the higher ketones you're going to have. So instead of like sipping on my coffee throughout like, you know, six hours, I may consume half of it immediately when I wake up and that like jump starts ketosis. And, uh, and then, then I'm just kind of riding, you know, it's, it's kind of jump starts ketosis and fat burning. And, uh, and then I will have like tea and, and later in the day or something like that. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, I will, uh, I'll go for a walk or something like that. Like I will do things to stimulate fat mobilization, which will make more ketones. Uh, so on the days that I'm fasting, I notice that if I wake up and I'm working for three or four hours and I start to get hungry, I will take the dogs for a brisk walk out in the sun. And then that'll completely change my physiology to where I'm in a stronger state of you know ketosis wow. and I'm just back at it again. So I may take more breaks, uh, but generally what happens on the second day is that my body has this very, my mind and my body have a very calm state and the thoughts are flowing much more freely and I'm just much more productive in a writing mode, much more cognitively, you know, uh, aware of things too. And my senses are increased. Like my eyesight is more sharper, my sense of smell, is much more uh, my, you know, if I have any kind of congestion, it's definitely gone by the second day, second or third day. Like I go for a walk and I can smell things I haven't even smelled before after about two or three days fasting. So if your goal is to optimize focus, will fasting, will that be the way to do it? It will. And I try to do it. I'm actually due for a three day fast. The last time I did it was about three months ago. So I like to do it about three to four times a year, a three-day fast. And what I do is I fast until I reach a glucose ketone index of one, which means that the blood level of my ketones is the same as the blood level of my glucose. So it's like my body is, you know, basically burning. My brain is basically 50% glucose, 50% ketones. 
that state, you would need a very strict ketogenic diet to achieve that state. But uh, at, with a glucose ketone index of one, I'm maximizing a lot of the biochemical physiological processes that are beneficial for fasting, like autophagy, like uh, you know, suppression of insulin signaling, uh, your fat oxidation is maximized. And I think after three days, I start to see a decrease in things like testosterone and, and thyroid. So I stop at three days because if I go to five days or seven days, I start to see negative consequences. Uh, and that's just the body's adaptation to energy deprivation, right? But at three days, especially if I go into a three-day fast where I'm well-fed, I like to eat liver the day before. So liver tends to give my body a lot of nutrition where like if I have liver, if I, if I have liver on Sunday and then I start the fast Monday, my energy level is much higher for the first day or two. So I've noticed this yeah, anecdotally. Yeah. Liver is just like a super dense form of, of, of nutrition. So I think it's sort of, and the, your liver by eating liver, your liver will actually, uh, store like B vitamins and, you know, vitamin B12 and, and other things that may be deficient. And I just, I don't eat liver all the time, but my wife usually makes it maybe once every week or two. And I noticed yes. that it boosts my energy. I never liked it before I met my wife, but she's Hungarian and she, tends to eat a lot of like, you know, organ meats and things like that. And I was, um, I was kind of averse to that before we met, but now I've created a liking to it. That's really interesting. I'll definitely have to, to try it. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you was if you could tell us a bit about Nemo 22 and, and Nemo 23 and also your high seas mission. Well, thanks for asking about uh, NEMO, which stands for NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations. And uh, so I think shortly after we talked, um, I had the incredible opportunity to be part of a space analog mission that NASA really holds for training astronauts. And occasionally they bring scientists on these missions. And uh, so mine, so NASA always creates acronyms for things. So <laughs> NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations, you know, started back, I think, in 2001 with the first mission. So yeah, NEMA was an incredible opportunity that they used to train astronauts. But as a scientist, I was, I lived underwater for 10 days in a state of ketosis. And I did a lot of science objectives, which included, you know, uh, measuring sleep, measuring stress, measuring a whole bunch of biomarkers and myself in this extreme environment at three atmospheres of pressure. We live under the sea, under the Atlantic. And then NASA also has different objectives for us to test different devices, different procedures in what they call an extravehicular activity or an EVA. And we do that in the water, but we live in a dry habitat that's pressurized, you know, because underwater at the pressure of the water that we're at, which is, you know, at 60 feet or so we're at three atmospheres. And then if we do an EVA, sometimes we go down to like about 90 feet. So it's a little bit more. And we live in a state of saturation, which means that uh, to come up to the top, we have to do a pretty complicated stage decompression. So I, uh, my mission commander was Chell Lindgren, 
his name. Uh, he was was on the space station. He's a medical doctor, NASA's astronaut, one of the top NASA astronauts, also a medical doctor. He was my commander for Nemo. Incredible wow. guy. Every every all my crew was like really incredible, and it became probably one of the most you know thrilling ten days of my life. We had to train for it at NASA. Uh, we had to train how to use how to dive in saturation. Uh, and we collected a ton of data that we recently published a few months ago. And then a couple hurricanes knocked, knocked uh, Irma, uh, knocked, dis disrupted the habitat. So two years later, my wife was selected for an all-female crew, including Samantha Cristoforetti. And uh, she was a European Space a Agency astronaut. She was the commander of that, of that crew. And, uh, and we followed up with more research uh, with, Nat, with NEMO 23. And uh, that was interesting because it was an all-female crew. And we did, you know, cardiometabolic uh, tests on the astronauts, you know, in, in the habitat. Her, her mission was nine days. And we're continuing. We want to partner with NASA, you know, on mission 24. I don't know if we'll actually be you know, subjects on that, but we, we hope to get our science on uh, this. And it, it gives us insight into understanding what it's like psychologically, the stress of living in these confined environments. Uh, it gives us insight into operational procedures that could be used for a lunar mission or a mission to Mars. And uh, it is the closest thing that we have for training astronauts uh, to be in deep space, which would be a lunar mission or a Mars mission. And then wow. the other uh, thing is the high seas, which takes place on a volcano on the big island in Hawaii. And my wife has been uh, uh, working on uh, different protocols for that. And that'll take place in a couple months. I can't talk too much about it, but it's basically, uh, if you look it up, high seas mission, it's a space analog mission that they run in Hawaii to vet out and understand, you know, different procedures and techniques and, and the science of living in these confined environments, uh, austere environments really with uh, limited resources. So uh, space science is something that we're very passionate about and it's not too different. Living in these extreme environments is very similar to the undersea environment. So there's a big correlation between exploration undersea in a confined environment and exploration in space. And that's why NASA even trains their astronauts at the neutral buoyancy lab, where uh, that's the only really good simulation for a zero G environment where you can, you know, be weightless. How bizarre, you know, that underwater would be the closest thing we have to outer space. Yeah, well, it simulates neutral buoyancy, simulates uh, floating in space, right? So uh, when they did the first spacewalks, you know, years, I think it was Buzz Aldrin uh, was a big advocate of this, was saying, well, this is going to be suicide. If we don't figure out a way to train people to do spacewalks, we have to. And then there was like a preliminary neutral buoyancy lab, but ultimately NASA dug a huge pool where there's a mock-up of, of the space station at the neutral buoyancy lab. And it's just a few miles from, uh, you know, the headquarters. And, uh, and that's where we did some of our training for the NEMO mission. I remember doing my swim test and swimming over the mock-up of the space station. Actually, I had a huge wow. rush when I was doing my swim test for that. 
So yeah, it becomes uh, training in water is really the only way to effectively train astronauts for extravehicular activity or to learn how to function and do operational procedures in a space environment. So it's, it's exciting to be part of the science team that's involved with that. And we hope to continue uh, you know, partnering with, with NASA and with other agencies like DARPA to do these, to do these space analog missions. Wow, it's incredible. It's great that you get to be a part of that. And I'm, I'm excited to see, to watch the progression of those projects. Yeah, and we think that nutritional ketosis plays, should play a role in astronaut nutrition because logistically there's a lot of benefits to being in a state of nutritional ketosis. And we think it offers a lot of health benefits, you know, uh, neuroprotection probably, and maybe some anti-cancer benefits for long duration uh, space missions. Right. Wow. Really, really cool. Um, I really appreciate your time, Dom. Thanks for it's great to reconnect.